No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Wassalatu Wassalamu ala Rasulillah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We'd like to welcome everyone to today's very special episode of the Life Hawk podcast. We have with us today a legend in the Muslim world, a legend in uh, Islamic uh, da'wah and outreach. Uh, if you think I have experience uh, in 20 years of working in Islamic uh, outreach and whatnot, you can double that with this sheikh, and he probably has uh, uh, much greater experience in the Muslim world, and also not only in the Muslim world, but worldwide, because we're talking about over 80 countries. We're talking about uh, over 75,000 people accepting Islam uh, through the direct uh, efforts of this sheikh, and uh he is definitely legendary from, I would say, multi-generational perspective because uh, people, I would say, from my father's generation to my generation, and inshallah, we have a whole new generation of people discovering uh, the uh, efforts and the works of the sheikh. So without further delay, I would like to welcome to the podcast, Sheikh Khalid Yasin. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum wa barakatuh, Dr. Uh, thank you very much for this uh, uh, invitation, and uh, I'm very uh, humbled uh, by your comments. Um, I personally don't think I deserve all of that, uh, but um, I do appreciate it, and uh, most of what you said is fairly accurate. Jazamah khair, Sheikh, and uh, we are honored to have you with us today. Uh, we, my personal experience uh, in terms of the first time I met you, uh, and I haven't shared this with you yet. I wanted to just share this live on air so it's organic and the uh, feelings come straight from the heart. Uh, I actually, uh, the first thing, as many people got introduced to you by the Purpose of Life cassette, Dawa cassette. I heard it many, many, many times over. And then I was a student at that time. And then I heard, hey, across the country, uh, Sheikh Khalid is coming. Uh, to uh, give a course and some programs. So I got on a four-hour plane flight as a student. So uh, we shelled out the money, got there, uh, arrived. And Sheikh, I never saw a picture of you before that time. And you have a very powerful voice. And I thought I was going to see a man who was over seven feet tall. You know what I mean? Because you're <laughs> po and like huge. Because you, mashallah, you have a strong voice. And so when I get there, I was like, oh, my goodness, like completely different from the voice that I had, but still very strong presence, very uh, beautiful uh, uh, experience. And one of the things that I really appreciated uh, was the fact that uh, you had what I felt and I still feel a sincere, compassionate concern for people. That's what I felt, because, you know, a lot of speakers, because I've been in the, like not as much as you, but I've been around. I've spoken with a lot of different speakers, scholars, du'at, motivational speakers, uh, helped organize, been invited with. So I've been in these different types of gatherings. And one thing you realize is that a lot of people actually, uh, they don't really like people. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they, they don't like being around people. But you really like that. You would give a, a lecture, you would talk, and then you would have handlers around you, and you would kind of put them to the side, and you would want to actually engage with people. And I appreciated that uh, back then as I do uh, today, uh, especially when you're making time for us because I know you're very busy. And for you to do that again, it shows that you care about what you are doing which is a very hard characteristic to find. So my first, what I want to discover from you and what I want to talk to you about is that how did you develop such a strong voice? Like what from your background? Like was it some of the challenges you had coming up? Was it uh, tarbiya that was taught to you? How did you develop such a strong, what I would say a principled, uh, confident yet compassionate voice? Well, um, it wasn't academic. Uh, that's mm. what I can tell you. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I didn't go to uh, a voice school or I didn't go to um, for speech or diction. Um, you know, it's something when God gives you a gift, even if you don't mm. know you have the gift, mm. it's just a gift. And some people have a gift, but they exploit the gift. And later on in life, they lose it. Uh, other people have a gift, but they don't, they don't, they're not active in the area of the gift, so they don't refine it. Mm. Um, um, early in life, I realized that I wasn't like a, so good of a student, meaning that I, I wasn't an institutional guy. Uh, and I don't mind sharing this with the, your audience. Um, I grew up um, in an orphanage, um, even though I wasn't an orphan. It's just the circumstances of my family um, upbringing. Um, so that from five years old up to 16 years old, I spent most of my time in an orphanage. SubhanAllah. Um, and so um, because I didn't have my mother, I didn't have my father as I'm growing up and I saw other kids had families. I guess I was a little bit angry, you know, always kind of, well, they classified me as incorrigible. So, mm. you know, that means that this guy is kind of like acting outside of the box. We can't really control him. He's got some issues. That's mm. what it means, you know, incorrigible. Mm. So I carried that title, incorrigible, uh, from the time that I was in grade school until I went to high school. Maybe mm. they, clinically, maybe they were correct. Nevertheless, mm. I, I had to fend for myself because I was a little guy. Mm. So I used my academic or my ca capacity to read and my capacity to, um, I used it as an advantage. So when I was young, I did other people's homework for them. Mm. Uh, the guys who were bullies, I was able to contain them because I had to do their homework. Mm. So, um, you know, as a young guy, I learned to box. I learned to kind of fend for myself. Mm. And maybe this kind of like took upon a different, um, in my trajectory, so to speak. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. But um, uh, early in life, I began to read and write. Um, and I was, I was kind of like compelled to speak when I became a Muslim. Mm. Because as a Muslim, um, if you're able to read well, express yourself well and write well, then people kind of select you as a leader or a spokesperson. Mm. So I was thrown into public speaking um, without any training. Mm. And so I guess 
um, at uh, 22 years old, I was already an imam. Mm. Um, I wasn't mature, uh, certainly, uh, or experienced, but I kind of started to fit into the, uh, the role of being the public speaker, the commander, the executive, the manager, you know, the, um, all the things that's expected of a person who's the imam. Mm. Well, um, I, I developed those traits, I guess, that by the time I was 30, uh, because of being an avid reader, uh, not just a reader of books, but an avid reader of people, mm. um, having that Brooklyn, Harlem survival instinct, mm. um, able to find my balance whenever I went among people of different backgrounds. Mm. Um, I sort of started to, I guess the word in English is to hone my uh, public presence. And then I started to see how other public figures, how they conducted themselves, how mm. they spoke, how they stayed in the center of the screen, how they were able to kind of, um, um, I learned a lot from Malcolm, mm. um, just from watching him. I learned a lot from Muhammad Ali, just from listening and watching. Mm. Uh, I learned from other public speakers um, how they were able to, even though they didn't have a, like Malcolm didn't have a, Malcolm didn't gr graduate from high school, mm. but he had a, he had command. Yes. Whenever the cameras were turned on, he just had command of that room. Mm. Uh, that was a gift that God gave him. Mm. Um, he learned over the years how to be a public speaker, how to command his voice, his audience. Mm. Well, I didn't try to do it. It's just that, um, I don't know, some people are gifted in sports. Mm. And, um, obviously, I like to play basketball. I like to box. I like to play football. But being a little guy, I didn't like being roughed up. Mm. So um, I kind of took to writing, um, speaking. Mm. Um, and um, because I'm an avid reader, um, I mean, really, like, sort of like maybe I'm kind of like a, I'm not really like a street guy when it comes to reading. I'm yes. A when it I'm a street guy when it comes to my nature. Yes. But when it comes to reading, uh, I'm very much kind of like a, a bookworm. Okay. Uh, uh, you like to soak up a lot of books and. Uh, yeah. Yes. Between 25 and 35, I probably read at least 150 books. Mm. Uh, mostly, um, mostly biographies, historical mm. books. Uh, books about social, about civilization, about society, about government. And so by the time I was 35, um, I had probably a much better grasp uh, of social, political, geographical, uh, political subjects than most guys my age. Mm. And so that may have contributed towards um, this ambiance that mm. people develop you know so many people yeah. told me that's what you said check i thought you were much taller yeah. you know much bigger guy yeah uh, but it's just that's just not it yes uh, sheikh that's you know there is so much rich history uh you have in your uh background what i some of the similarities i see is that uh like with the sahaba radiallahu anhum where uh you don't you can't necessarily say these were necessarily intellectuals you know what i mean they had obviously 
a foundation of knowledge given to them, especially by the Quran and the Sunnah. But uh, I feel what gave them that power in whatever they did, or you could say the impact of whatever they did, is that maybe the circumstances that they were in, it was uh, it made them strong, it made them resilient. But then when you had a meaningful message, now you combine the two together. You have like uh, almost like this trial by fire and you have a meaningful message. That's a powerful combination. And, you know, what I see, uh, you know, with, with you, Sheikh, and and common because, you know, you always try to get patterns. You know, you always try to see patterns from uh, people who you admire. And what I see is that one pattern that I can detect is that people, when they go through like a hardship, it gives them like an ability to have certain quality and characteristic traits. But if you combine that with a meaningful message, with a higher purpose, uh, with a mission that is uh, more than just themselves, that's what that's how they are able to give an impact. Because as you mentioned, there's people who can speak very well. There are people who have a lot of knowledge, who maybe memorized books and PhDs and have a lot of degrees associated with that. But maybe there's not necessarily any wisdom with that because they don't know how to take that information and extrapolate, extrapolate benefit for human beings, for humanity, right? And so uh, I think that's something. The reason why I asked you your background, Sheikh, is because we need to get experience. We need to connect with people, especially uh, the people who came before us. Uh, so that we have a better path moving forward. Because with the upcoming generation, it's different than maybe your time, uh, Sheikh, because everybody has a voice now with social media. Everybody has a voice, but it's just, a lot of it is just noise. You know what I mean? Where is the meaningful dialogue? You know what I mean? Where is the meaningful engagement with people? And that's why... I want people to reflect this powerful voice didn't come with a number of followers. People do it opposite around. You know what I mean? They're doing things backwards. Uh, I need to get the number of followers first, or I need to get everything on the front end, but the back end is empty. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's like a store in the front end. It looks really nice. You open the door. There's no, there's nothing inside. You know what I mean? So that's what I want this upcoming generation to reflect upon and learn is that, you know, how do you develop a process to have something meaningful and impactful to say, you know? Uh, and uh, we're very quick. Uh, I think a lot of the things that you overcame, we're unfortunately, we're very quick uh, to fall into, uh, without getting the lessons into the wrong lessons of that. So for example, maybe they labeled you incorrigible. Right, Sheikh? So they gave you that label. And, and Muslims generally today are, are dealing with a whole bunch of labels. So they gave you that label, but that's not who you allowed yourself to be defined as. You, you know, Sheikh? So how, like that, I think, is a big challenge for us to overcome right now is the imposed definition of others. Mm. What can we learn from you to overcome that definition? Mashallah. Like that, is, you know what I mean? Good. Um, doctor, let me say this. Um, first of all, about your speech about how um, how the uh, the test, the trials, the environment, the circumstances, how it sort of like hones out or carves out 
uh, the person or their legacy or whatever. Um, um, you know, the, there's, there's two sayings I want to share. Uh, one uh, uh, comes from Sheng Tzu, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, philosopher. He said, uh, he said that um, the, um, when, the, when the carpenter works on the wood, the wood works on the carpenter. That's, that's one, uh, which is very true. The more intense that you work on the wood, the more intense the wood or the work uh, uh, works on, uh, carves you out. Uh, so it's not the person is so much their ambition, you know, what they had, their vision or their talents. It's really how intensely they are engaged in the work that they are. And what happens is that the elements of the environment of the work, it just carves out the individual. That's mm. what I see. And that's what I've seen in so many, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like, uh, you can, if, if you want to say that I have a hobby, one of my hobbies, I guess, over the years, is that I have read um, the life and the works of at least 150 powerful people. Mm. Um, and um, I do it by synopsis, of course, you know, because you can't get the details of 150 powerful people. Uh, but I read their life, and after that, I do a summation or a synopsis of their life. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you read somebody's life, you read some things that kind of counteract or contradict what they were known for. Mm. But then you have to learn to extract the best and leave the rest. That's mm. what you have to learn to do. Otherwise, you don't get the full lesson. You know, you can't eat the corn and the cob. You got to leave, you know, you, you eat the corn and leave the cob. Mm. Uh, so in, in talking about people, and you have to learn to do that. That's number one. The second thing is that uh, you probably heard this also. The best deal comes from the hottest fire. Yes. Uh, that is most definitely the truth. People who have went through the most trials, tribulations, um, uh, hardships, um, failures, they fell down on their face, they were oppressed, they were depressed, uh, they were imprisoned, they were denied, they were put in a situation of disadvantage, or they were shamed, or they were, whatever happened to them, um, they were raped. So many things happened, and, you know, we don't realize that sometimes trauma Mm. Brings, brings out the best of an individual if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them that spark um, to turn that corner. Because trauma can destroy a person or trauma can make the person. That's what I have found. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I like to use an example, and I don't want to dominate uh, too much on the, this, my, my end. But, you know, this COVID-19 trauma, mm. this global trauma, um, um, brings to my mind uh, the ayah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says mm. nobody knows from where the, the, the hidden armies of Allah comes from Yes. and this COVID-19 yes it is a disease and we have to take it serious mm. regardless of whether other people have exploited it uh, um, whether people have themselves uh, used it to, mm. to promote their own agendas. Um, so it has become a conspiratorial tool or platform, mm. but it's a real disease. Mm. Just like there was disease that happened in, in bubonic plague or the Black Death or whatever. It's a real disease. And Muslims uh, or individuals have to understand that in, fight, in spite of the fact that socially or politically or psychologically, people are using it as a weapon 
uh, 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 to um, uh, for their advantage, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's the Gates Foundation or whether it is uh, the um, uh, or, or other types of people, um, uh, they're using it for their own advantage, their own agenda mm -hmm. uh, to to do different things. But it is from the plan of Allah, mm -hmm. and when the, the plan of Allah is in action, the people on the sidelines can use it in different ways. But it's not going to overall, or it's not going to overcome or derail the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so this COVID-19, what I realized by being in um, solitary confinement, I mean, I decided individual, uh, I decided myself as a 74-year-old person that I would better, I would be, I would, I would be better advised to look at the the medical issues and warnings and protocols and take my precautions because they say that older people have mm. compro have uh, um, uh, compromised uh, immune systems. And uh, so if you've got high blood pressure, if you've got this, if you've got that, you're more likely to succumb to the disease. So I decided to go into voluntary isolation. So from uh, early March, uh, even up until now, uh, I've been in sort of like voluntary isolation. It wasn't easy uh, mm. being a person that moves around the world and a person being very social. It wasn't easy for me to do that, to mm. be literally in a high-tech cave, you know what I'm saying, for five months. But mm. to be very honest with you, doctor, and your audience, uh, I did more work on myself, and I did more work um, towards my legacy in five months than I've done in the last three years. Mm. So the COVID-19 for me was a fortune from misfortune. Yes. And so the realization of that came to me in the middle of writing the book. So mm. what happened, uh, and I don't, I don't mind sharing this also, a group of sisters from Edmonton, uh, uh, Canada, seems like good things come from Canada uh, from a virtual point of view, you know? Uh, so a group of sisters uh, from Edmonton, California, uh, uh, Canada, called me about uh, in Sha'ban, early Sha'ban, and they said to me, uh, Chef, you know, we're looking for somebody who can give us some classes or some uh, some sessions uh, to inspire us or motivate us or to put us on the right track, you know, because it seems like, you know, that everything is going haywire. We lost our teacher. We don't know what to do. We called all these different scholars or students of knowledge who are well-known, but everybody's got their own agenda. They don't even call back. Nobody mm -hmm. seems to have any time. And, you know, we're just a group of sisters. We're nobody. We don't, it's not like a masjid or organization. So, Shaq, can you give us a class? Uh, you know, just something? I told mm -hmm. the sisters, listen, I'm in isolation. Mm -hmm. And you just called me. I'm, I'm, I'm starving for uh, mm -hmm. an audience. I'm starving to do something. So I said, okay, sister, no problem. I said, but these are the rules. I gave mm. them my rules based upon my capacity. Mm. They accepted the rules. And would you believe this? We have not missed the class. Mm. In five months, these sisters have been consistent. Mm. We're, we're on Zoom. I never used Zoom before. Yes. So we did um, five months of classes. We just started six weeks ago on the seerah, because uh, we have a, I have a special love for the seerah of the Prophet And I told them, sisters, if you're really interested to do something significant, let us do a course, a small course in the seerah. 
We are engaged in that. Um, so the COVID-19 brought about a window for me mm. to teach, a window for me to deliver, a window for me to write my book. Um, I finished my book that I've been working on for like around six years. Mm. I finished it during the COVID-19. So yes. having said that, uh, doctor, I, um, I, have a lot, I have a lot to say in response to what you have just asked. Um, but uh, in summary, I can just say to the yourself and your audience that um, we have to always keep a window open for circumstances, situations, mm. and challenges yes. to carve us out yes. and to demand from us um, a, a hurdle or a standard. And if we are able to meet that uh, demand, that might bring out something unique. Whereas if we don't have that kind of opposition, you know, I read um, a one time, uh, there's a verse of the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that he gave to the prophets, alayhi salam, mm. um, um, enemies which were commensurate to their prophethood. Mm. So it means that the enemies that Allah gave to the prophets, they were not ordinary enemies. Mm. They were the kinds of enemies that were commensurate to the to the stature of a prophet. Mm. So having said that, it seems to me that um, each one of us have to, you know, if you go into the gym um, and you want to do cardio or you want to build up yourself, you got to do it by lifting weights. You got to do it by something challenging because otherwise mm. you're not going to do anything except exhaust yourself. Yes. So uh, thank you very much for that, for that observation. And yeah. uh, you, you can see, doctor, that when you ask me a question, um, um, I don't mean to dominate the time, but uh, I, I'm kind of like full of energy and yes. feeling about the questions that you're asking. And I really want to make sure that um, that I deliver from my end uh, the, the, the energy that you are seeking for the mm. audience. It seems, uh, Sheikh, you have a very good attitude, and that's, I think, a characteristic of a believer, that everything is good for the believer. Everything, whether... It is a blessing, whether you look at it upon as a, as a test or a trial, that uh, we can utilize something good to advance ourselves forward. And I think obviously for the believer, that advancement is getting closer towards Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. You know, to look at it through those uh, you know principled lenses, and that's what I'm hoping we can shed light upon because we have, as I mentioned, uh, we have generations now coming up, but their tarbiyah, their maybe their training, their education, their exposure of uh, how they can move their life forward. It's coming through, you know, social media where everybody is an expert. Uh, everyone's a life coach and you they haven't had any real experiences. You know what I mean? Like when you talk about somebody going through real like hardcore racism or poverty or overcoming societal challenges and you need to listen to people who have overcome that and accomplished that rather than maybe somebody who will just point to those directions almost as virtue signaling like, oh yeah, like these are things that we should be aware about, but they have no authentic experience or roadmap of like, okay, how do we get through that? And I think those are two, two ways to, to do that. One is through real authentic experience. And number two is that if you have real knowledge about that, real knowledge. And for us, um, 
you know, as you've uh, quoted some ayat from Quran, uh, and you know, when we quote hadith, that is knowledge about how a Muslim, the compass of how we should uh, move forward. And um, I want to get to maybe something topical, then maybe we can extract. Uh, so let's just take this as a case study and then maybe we can take some of your experience because I'm sure you've dealt with media a lot. Or you've dealt with um, uh, the, you know, a lot of the challenges within uh, the communities. So there's a uh, MSNBC uh, broadcaster. She has her own program, Joy Reid. I don't know if you've heard of her before. Yeah, I've heard of her. Okay. So just uh, a few days ago, uh, she equated radical trump supporters to the way uh muslims act so um joy reed she's an msnbc broadcaster she has her own program she equated uh trump supporters uh with uh the way muslims act okay and um so a lot of people were critical about uh what she said I would say it was a tepid response based to how she characterized the whole Muslim world. I felt it showed a lot of animus towards Muslims and Islam in general. And if we look at, uh, she tried, she she almost did a half-hearted, uh, not really an apology, but just a half-hearted, oh, I may have articulated myself incorrectly, right? But if we look at her history, uh, you know, she has made some very, um, I would say uh, strong statements, like one of her statements to quote her, uh, she said, the only reason that a world war between civilizations has not already broken out is the vast majority of Muslims living in the world today are so desperately poor, they have time, energy and resources for only occasional bursts of AK-47 fire into the air from the garbage and sewage laden streets outside of their mud huts okay this is a this is a quote from her in the past and of course she has her own show now a nightly program and she's characterizing muslims in a certain way our response i would say has been tepid at best it hasn't been very uh like something like this shows like why are you characterizing like you've made you know msnbc CNN, certain news channels have made Trump like and their supporters the enemy. And now it's like they're showing now, OK, remember, these are common enemies with the terrorists that we've been fighting, you know, to characterize us to further their agenda. And we've talked about having a strong, principled voice. How do we uh, as a community now uh, give a strong voice to show our dissatisfaction with being characterized like that? with being labeled like that and to show that it is not acceptable because unfortunately uh, what's working against us are that Muslims who won't give a strong voice or opposition to that or are more inclined to maintaining the status quo, they're given the platform. You know what I mean? But how can we now create our own platform and, and have a strong voice to show, no, you're labeling us incorrectly this is very destructive and um w we will choose how we want to be labeled we will we will uh define ourselves our community and ourselves okay um you know doctor i think that her comments uh are fairly consistent 
um, with the thinking pattern uh, of the popular Islamophobes. Mm. Uh, she's an Islamophobe, mm. uh, meaning that she has a peripheral understanding of Islam. Uh, she has a, uh, an inaccurate, distorted image of Islam. Mm. Um, she has a, an irrational hatred uh, uh, for Islam. Um, Sheikh, if I may, can I ask you one uh, question in regards to, to that? So, yes, uh, I just wanted to interject here just for uh, for a moment, uh, Sheikh, when you're characterizing um, certain people who are Islamophobic, uh, who may be ignorant about Islam. Sheikh, I've, I've heard this, uh, you know, many times, like some people, I they they will say on one hand, you have people who say that uh in a certain type of, I would say, compassionate approach, I don't know how much of it is compassionate to certain people who are who aren't as experienced as you. I, I would say perhaps it's a little bit of a naive uh, approach, but they say oh, all these people need to be is educated, you know. Now, with somebody who are uh, these industries, uh, these people are uh, usually very well trained, educated. They have a lot of funding. They uh, are well prepared. We're talking about like, you know, these news corporations, multi-billion dollar corporations, right? Yes. How much of it do, are, do, would you say is uh, ignorance and how much of it would you say is purposeful animus? Like well, no, they're haters. I'll, you know I'll what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Directly. Yes. Uh, it's, it's not. It's not. They are ignorant in a sense because the law makes them ignorant. Yes. You know, a law puts a zulm on them where they are not able to see the reality because mm. they don't deserve to see the reality because mm. Allah wants to curtain them from the reality and he wants to ambush them later on in their life. Mm. So Allah precludes them from the reality. So from that point, we have to be understand that they are ignorant and uh, the principle of marru kirama salama. So, you know, so we have to adopt the principle, first of all, that they are ignorant partially because of their own behavior, uh, their own ethics, and secondly, because Allah made qadr on them to do that so he can ambush them later on in life. That's mm -hmm. one. The, but for the most part, they have been trained uh, and indoctrinated and motivated to act the way they're acting as an irrational hatred towards Islam to feed into an agenda uh, that they are, that they have their allegiance towards. So I don't want to act as if um, that, you know, somehow, somehow we should try to understand them. No, uh, there are a, a group of Islamophobes that I have studied, contemporary Islamophobes, uh, because Islamophobia is something that was born around 1991, officially. Uh, Islamophobia, and by the way, it was born in, uh, it came to birth in Britain, okay. So uh, it's, it's a recent phenomenon, Islamophobia as a science, as a, as a weapon of uh, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, I've studied about 25 or 30 major Islamophobes in the world today, and I would say 10 of them are principal. The others, mm -hmm. they're not principal, they're secondary. They're feeding off of the principles. Then there are about three or four organizations of very wealthy people who themselves foster, develop, cultivate, push, feed these Islamophobic people. So it has now become 
uh, an institutional mechanism in the Western world to weaponize people against Muslims and Islam. So having said that, um, uh, however, what I want to say is that when you put yourself in a frame to be exploited, mm. then you yourself become victimized because you put yourself there. Mm. Unfortunately, most of the Muslim world are acting in the way exactly how she has articulated them. Mm. Now, if I'm a non-Muslim, educated individual, or you know, uh, without global exposure or whatever, and I see the pictures of Muslims, how they react. And this is the issue. Muslims are not responding to issues. For the most part, Muslims have been trained or indoctrinated by their culture to react to issues. So what are their reactions? They're almost just like what she said. Uh, to be uh, very honest, when people say things about Muslims, I have to be honest enough with myself to know that even though I'm a Muslim and I am insulted by what they say, a lot of what they say is very accurate in terms of the, what we see. You know, um, you know, like for instance, if somebody said something about the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu you know, like, uh, uh, like in Denmark when the cartoons came out, the mm. way that Muslims reacted was really an overkill. Mm. I mean, you, 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 first of all, we don't need to defend the Prophet Sallallahu That's number one. The, the companions of the Prophet defended him on the battlefield. They defended him when people were physically stoning him. They did their best to do that, but they did not defend the Prophet in the sense of people's um, uh, accusations or their insults or their plots. They didn't do that the way we are reacting today because they understood from the Prophet They understood from the revelation that that really wasn't necessary. Allah subhanahu wa will protect his religion. Allah will protect his prophet. Allah will protect the message. Allah will protect Islam and that we Muslims it doesn't really require a human element to kind of like give respect to Islam. So what did Muslims do when, the, when that uh, situation happened with the, with the Muslims want to kill? They want to burn the churches. They want to burn the embassies. They want to burn the flag. They want to kill Kafirs. Why? Because this is a very elementary reaction that children do. So it was not intellectual. It wasn't a response. It wasn't that let us analyze why these people said that. And I could give you an example of, in my own life, what happened. Um, when those, uh, uh, if you don't mind, doctor, I don't want to take up too much time, but I just want to give you no, an example. Go ahead. When those, uh, uh, when the, when those um, um, uh, insults, those cartoons came, I realized that the cartoons was just something in Europe, which is called satire. Mm. And satire is an intellectual way of uh, poking fun uh, at the king or the rulers or the, the hierarchy that has become acceptable in Europe. You can use satire or comedy, but you can't say it directly. Mm. You know, uh, it has become acceptable in European, uh, in, yeah. modern, in the modern world to talk about Trump, you know, or to talk about the government. But you don't do so directly because when you do it directly, you wind mm. up in a situation like the WikiLeaks guy. You want yes. to in a situation, you know, because now he's doing it directly, overtly. Okay. Mm. So when I saw that, I was in Mecca at the time when it happened. And mm. all, the, all the, the imams were given the order by the government to talk about this issue to, uh, and to say we, we, have to black, we have to black label 
um, uh, we have to boycott all the goods coming from was it was it was it Denmark? We have to boycott all the goods coming from Denmark. We don't want to mm. hear anything about them. Their country is this and that and blast them and how they're mm. talking about Islam and about our Protestants. And mm. I heard my teacher give a talk like that. And I asked him afterward, listen, mm. is that your personal feeling? Did you research the country of Denmark? Do you know the status of uh, the, the attitude of the government towards Muslims? Do you know about the Muslims in Denmark? Did you really research this issue for yourself? Or you just took this here carte blanche from your uh, agency and you just talked about it? Well, when he honestly replied to me, he told me that they had been given a script. Okay, so the script that they had been given was inaccurate. It was, it was reactionary because that was the government's position to react. Mm. Whether if they had responded, it would have been very, if they had responded diplomatically, if they had responded intellectually, if they had studied the situation, they would have understood that this was a group of guys sitting in a, in a dark room, smoking weed, okay, drinking a beer, and having fun. And what happened, they made a caricature of the Prophet Salaam having fun, and they showed it to their, um, their manager. And he said, hey, that's great, run it. You know, and they just, next thing they hit it. But they didn't realize that they had struck the hornet's nest. They didn't realize that. So she, the I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, Sheikh. So, uh, a, a, a few things, uh, if I, if I uh, may. Uh, there was actually a diplomatic effort made for three months. Ambassadors from different Muslim countries actually exhorted, uh, you know, the Danish government to take down these cartoons. That it is very insulting towards Muslims. So it was actually quite a few months uh, that they were actually sending ambassadors to deal with it. And then they kind of continued to refuse that. And like without getting too much detail on that issue, because I don't want to isolate that issue because in and of itself, like there's a lot of detail surrounding that. But what I would say, Sheikh, to just give an empathetic view of the average uh, Muslim in, say, the Muslim world. I find when I look at them and I, you know, when you, and, and you've probably sp spoken to a lot of them, they al they're almost in between like this rock and a hard place. They have troubles having their own governments properly represent them and take care of them. So they have this type of situation. And then they're sandwiched in between, you know, this. And, and, you, and it's not a new phenomenon, by the way. You know, D Dante's divine comedy and Orientalism. They've always had this animus towards the, the Muslim world and, you know, poking fun at Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and and undermining it. And it also comes from that cultural of enlightenment where you have, like, religion at a whole being made fun of right and and, and whatnot yeah, as yeah. well yeah, cool. but but now they have like okay you have like these people making fun of like you know our prophet they're they're insulting us our governments don't properly represent us and so a lot of these people they act very irrationally because they feel like they're sandwiched in between this rock and a hard place is it correct you know as you said is it the most effective way of um, conveying your frustration, your hurt, and all these things. Not necessarily, probably not. But I, from like an empathetic view, and I try to understand the mindset, because when I talk to them, it's like, okay, if I talk to my government, they're not going to care unless there's some type of financial thing involved, right? And governments don't make decisions based on uh, principles necessarily. And how come is it that uh, it is like illegal for you to, for example, deny the Holocaust in like 50 
you know, plus countries. It's like it's, you know, that's an illegal thing that you can get prosecuted for. And they can make like this statement, which is like the most hurtful thing to us as a Muslim. Right. So, the, you know, you get this mindset of a person who just feels frustrated and then they go out and they in the streets and they do this demonstration and, and, and some of these things. The average Muslim doesn't want to do that. Like they don't want to like resort to violence or do a lot of these things but i think they're in a they're in a frustration situation sheikh like you know that and that's why uh, and that's what i love about you is you have like these pragmatic practical solutions what i want to do is like the people who have been able to elevate their voice how can we take those characteristics based on like you're elevating you want to speak for the huck and you're doing it in a very eloquent way and you're able to do it in United States and you're able to do it in Europe and you're able to go to the Muslim world and do it, right? You, Sheikh, are the exception. The average Muslim feels like their voice is not being heard or their voice is being completely distorted and they're super frustrated. And you know, you've probably seen this in, in, in your own communities. A lot of times when people are abused, what do they end up doing? They abuse others. They've been abused for so long that's all they learn is how to abuse. Yeah, um, brother, um, doctor, I have a tremendous amount of empathy uh, for the Muslims as a people. This is yes. my ummah. This is my yeah. ummah by default. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I also have a great deal of empathy for my people, the African Americans, because they have suffered uh, tremendously uh, un uh, from uh, from an unimaginable, unimaginable type of uh, systemic oppression. Um, so. I empathize, but at the same token, I don't make excuses for my people, and I'm not making excuses, you know, something for uh, for the ummah and their behavior, because they have tools that they have access to, to be able to modify their behavior, to correct their views, uh, to be able to um, elevate themselves and to act in a uh, 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 to act in a civilized way, but they refuse to do so. Now. Uh, it's a part of the. It's a part of their. Um, it's a part of their culture. They just the culture says if somebody says something to you don't like, beat them up, drag them through the streets, blow them up, shoot them. If it's a woman, she's gonna marry somebody that you don't like, kill her, put her in the house. I mean, I have seen some things in the Muslim world that if I were not a Muslim, I don't want to say. If I was not, I'm just going to say because the Prophet said, don't say woulda, coulda, shoulda. We don't say that. You yes. Know, I'm saying that if I were not given the gift that Allah gave me, the resilience Allah has given me, allowed me to see things from the mountaintop, so to speak, I would have left Islam a long time ago by, the, by seeing the Muslims. We can make an excuse about their behavior. We can make an excuse about their being sandwiched in by conditions. But guess what? They were no, the Muslims today have no more, they have not suffered any more than the, than the Prophet Sallallahu and his companions suffered. You know, maybe their suffering was a bit more, uh, we can call it uh, um, um, like from a point of um, something being um, uh, uh, um, small and something being on a larger scale. Okay, the suffering of Muslims is on a larger scale because of social media and telecommunications. And you know the suffering of the Prophet and his companions was on a lesser scale because it was reduced to the peninsula of, of Arabia. But if you look at the intensity of the suffering and the challenges that they followed, that they that they faced, it was greater, and they had less, and they acted more dignified 
because they followed the orders and the advice and the example of the Prophet Muhammad Now here we are, we've got volumes of books, we've got ulama, mullah kabir, you know, we've got all kinds of scholars and, and teachers and we've got mosques and institutions and we've got tens and thousands of books in every mosque and we've got, all, then we've got Google, you know, we've got iPhone, we've got Samsung, we've got Netflix, we've got all kinds of tools to expose us and educate us, but we don't use it. That's what I saw in the Muslim world and I see a resistance in the Muslim world towards mainstream thinking, you know, thinking the way the world thinks. I don't mean the culture of the world. I don't mean the underculture of Europe, the underculture of America. I don't mean the underculture, the subculture. I mean mainstream thinking about human ethics, human conduct, human behavior, how we should act, what's right, what's wrong, what's acceptable, what's non-acceptable. There is a resistance in the Muslim world a great resistance just towards having decency and having the ability to, um, how can you say, to open your mind. You know, the Muslims tend to be, because of the culture, you know, I call, uh, and let me give you the scenario. I, I call the scenario culture being inside the prison. I mean, Islam being in the prison of a culture or Islam being in the passenger of Muslim culture so that when you drive up, People are not seeing Islam. They see a wrecked car. They see you know, some, some smell coming from the car. They see whatever they see. Um, it's not Islam. It's the vehicle of the culture. So when you get out or I get out of the car and we happen to be educated Muslims, already the bad impression has already been made by the vehicle. And so for me as a Muslim, to be honest, when I'm traveling around the world a lot of times, I am embarrassed. Okay, to be associated sometimes with the culture of Muslims. And let's separate things clearly. Muslims are separate from Islam. Muslims are a part of Islam by their profession, their connection, uh, by their sincerity. And, uh, I, I, and I'm never going to condemn people. Uh, Muslims are Muslims and they are valuable because of their attachment to Islam. But if I go to Asia and Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula, when I say Asians, Africans, and, uh, and Arabs, the triple A, you know, I am talking about the, the fourth A, America, but I'm talking about the triple A. So sometimes I am really embarrassed um, by having to answer for um, some of the profile, the social, intellectual profile of Muslims in the world today and how they react and respond to issues. Let me use another example. The Japanese, a bomb was dropped on the Japanese in 1945. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Literally 40% of their entire civilization destroyed. What kind of a trauma? They could not expect it. No one announced this bomb and what it could do. It was just dropped on them, right? 1945. Okay, fast forward. Today, how has Japan how has Japan recovered from that trauma? Psychologically, maybe they didn't completely, but socially, economically, uh, institutionally, uh, from a civilizational point of view, they have responded and the way they have responded is with such resilience 
that today um, they are controlling one third of the auto industry of the world, of the world. Secondly, their, um, their technology um, uh, is within the, the top five of the world, their technology. Their industries are within the top five of the world. Their economy is of the top five in the world. So, But is, my, is material progress uh, the best benchmark no, no, to, well, no, not, to gauge? Complete, no, it's not a complete benchmark, but it's an indication. And, and, and I'm a student. Of the, Because uh, if of we the... look at it socially now, like for example, Japan, say if we look at socially, uh, they have one of the highest suicide rates of the developed world. If we look at elderly neglect, like they have services now that provide for elderly people who've been neglected to just remove the body and clean the I facilities. Like, you I know what that. I mean? I got, so, I so like what, what, what I said, what I, other, no, no, that's, that's the other side. I'm not using Yes, yeah, that's uh, not so, using just the, 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 the uh, material progress. I'm saying that they were able to be resilient enough to bounce back. So let's not use that part of it. Let's yeah. use this part of it. I'm saying that for some reason and, you know, um, you know, human beings, we are sensory. We are sensory uh, individuals, uh, 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 species. We look at things. We feel we smell. We taste things. And that's how we say something is refined or it is not. It's, it's not just that we look behind and say it is refined. And I do agree with you. I understand those problems that exist in China and those problems that exist in Japan. I'm just saying the mainstream world, why haven't Muslims and their governments, why haven't they been able to move forward, to have progress, to be in the mainstream competition? Why are the The, the, the 170 transnational corporations of America, why are they planted in the Muslim world um, like as a dominant industrial force and that Muslims are not able to compete with that? Why is that? So it, it, has, it yeah. has something to do. It has something to do with the cultural um, um, fixation or the cultural stagnation okay, of the Muslim world. Now, I'm not blaming that on the Muslims themselves. I'm blaming this upon the leadership. I'm blaming this upon the so-called intellectuals. I'm blaming this upon, you know, me, the so-called, um, uh, 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 how can you say that, uh, um, the more responsible people. And mm -hmm. I do understand also that the Muslim world, as I have seen it, is more repressive in some of their behaviors against mm -hmm. their people. You know, we look at we look at the Muslims as oppressed from the outside. But having visited, having visited, you understand, I don't want to say the countries themselves, having yeah, visited yes. the Muslim world, let me just be general. After visiting the Muslim world, I have come to realize that Muslims suffer more from their own countries than they have suffered from the outside. So looking mm. at this whole situation, I I I I empathize with my ummah. I mm. empathize with my people, and I, like a doctor, when you go to a doctor, he realizes what you've been through, and he makes a treatment plan. And yeah. at a certain point, you got to dismiss all those uh, subjective issues of why into developing what you need to do to move forward. And, and so in my book or in my experience, what I'm dealing with more so from the whole subjective stuff of why We went through all of this here and all the psychological and psychosomatic 
and all reasons that we can give excuses of why we in this condition. I want to move forward. And in moving forward, you need certain tools. To compete, you need certain tools. To understand, you need a certain disposition. You need to have a change of thinking. And Allah said in the Quran, Allah does not change the condition of people until people change the condition of their hearts and their mind. He said, I'm physical. So the, the nafas or the, or the nufus or the amfus of the people is really their thinking and their hearts. Mm. So we don't change the thinking of Muslims and we don't change you know, their heart, their emotions. So they're able to take things in, diagnose it and respond as opposed mm. to react. We're not going to get better results. We're going to mm. still get this here throwing up of the dust and clouding things. And so people like Joy Reid and others like her, they can take advantage of that. And they mm. can couch, they can couch what they want to say, and it becomes believable to other people because of what they see. I mm. say, let us bring the dust down. Let us correct the distortions. Let us correct the picture. And we cannot expect the millions to do that. The hundreds have to do it. You yes. see, That's your program, your your program, Life Hawk, uh, most most Muslims who have a podcast, you know what they want to talk about? They want to talk about Akida. Yeah. They want to talk about Mustalahat of Hadith. You know, yes. they want to go into all this epistemology and blah, blah, mm. blah. But they never want to discuss the real issues mm. so that we can peel back the layers and go into the real issue, repair it, and then put the layers back. Now, this yeah. is what you're trying to do. Yes. And after looking at a few of your podcasts and talking to yourself and your colleagues, I decided to join this here. Why? Because I don't want the blah, blah, blah. Mm. I'm not trying to be popular. I'm trying to do something that, you know, sometimes you got to break something all the way down in order mm. to build it right back up. And this yes. is what I see you trying to do. And, and, and I'm, I'm very sorry. Uh, sometimes, you know, um, and I think it's, it's good. Uh, it's, it's good. Uh, what you call it? Um, uh, it's good energy. Yes. Uh, that, we, that we not patronize each other, you know, yes. that, that we bounce against each other. And, and when we think that the other person asks a, a, a fair question or they make an, 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 an evaluation that we think we can ex, that we can ex, ex, expound upon or that we can say, no, no, no. Let's take a different look at that. That's yeah. what you did. That's what yes. you did. And that's what I'm doing. And I yes. think this is where the energy That's, it makes it a much better conversation and we'll actually get better solutions from that, like to have this type of robust uh, dialogue, because I agree with you, like uh, unlike uh, many people who just stay in the theoretical world or just I, I teach halaqat, you know, I, uh, I do courses, all that stuff. But I think the difference with my experience is that we do on the ground work, community building. So we do things like whether it's like. Uh, personal development with real people in real time, uh, in the masajid, in the schools, you know what I mean? So it's not just about leaving education, but the practical and pragmatic implementation of that. And that's why from that perspective, um, you know, I always try to empathize as, okay, what is the person's perspective? Why have they arrived to this point? Because then the way that I, um, try to help that person might be, you know, dramatically different. And I'm sure you've seen that within the Muslim world. Like it's not a monolith, right? Like every country, the way we're characterized 
uh, you know, in a lot of Western countries as a monolith, as if we have a Khalifa and we're all one people and we all have the same way of thinking. It's and it's very it's it's, it's not true. true. It's it's not true. And I think one of the things that we can identify, though, is that these issues that you've described and and you're very frustrated with, I think there are symptoms of those core issues, right? Like mm. where uh, you'll see it manifest in certain ways. You might find the same core issue manifests itself in like a person becoming hyper reactive, or it might even actually manifest itself being like um, very complacent. You know, I would say it's just as bad if somebody were to hear an insult of say Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and they didn't care at all. You know what I mean? It didn't exactly. affect their heart. That is just as bad as somebody going, okay, I'm going to go kill somebody. You know what I mean? Exactly. I feel like, I feel the that's a dead heart. Those are dead hearts, right? But it's coming back from that same uh, source. You, you understand what I'm saying? And we're seeing it manifest in different ways, in different forms. The pragmatic solutions that I feel that I, I can get from you, when you said the 100, and I agree with you 100% with that, is that we need uh, leaders who are principled, who speak the truth, uh, who are willing to step up to help lead the community, help guide true leaders. Because what I feel is that either through our own complacency, we have bad leaders, but also this, you know, we want people who have this enmity towards us. They want us to have ineffective leaders. They want us to have incompetent leaders. They want us to have leaders don't, that don't truly advocate and represent us. You know, Sheikh? So how are we going to now develop those leaders and support them? Because you could have somebody, and we and we've seen that, Sheikh. Like I'm sure we have common people that we admire that we could say this this person was good. They stand up for the truth, but they get no support. So they're by themselves, isolated on an island, and then they're e they're easy pickings. You know, they'll come in there just easy pickings for people who oh this guy's talking the truth, and anybody who speaks the truth, Sheikh, is gonna have enemies. You can't be a person who has the truth with you that you're gonna you're not gonna have yeah, people yeah. Who are opposed. So how are we going to have okay. like with all these issues? How are we gonna have true leaders and then support okay. them? You Dr. know when they are on the hop. Doctor, what I'd like to say to you, um, from what I have, from my reading, yes, from my exposure, uh, there's another characteristic that you didn't mention. Uh, it's called willingness to take the risk. Yes. Because if you've got a leader who's principled, a principled uh, leader who's qualified, uh, 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 a leader who um, has good intentions and is sincere uh, and all of that, but he or she uh, in their leadership capacity is not willing to take the risk, then this defies the dua of the Prophet where he made a dua that our mother Aisha anha, said that he used to make after every prayer. So one of those du'as that he made was, uh, Allah save me from cowardice. Mm. See, to be coward, cowardly is not to be openly a coward. It is to be inwardly a coward that you don't want to be harmed. And in many cases, you don't even want to be inconvenienced. You do not want your, you don't want your standard of life to be 
threatened. You don't want your family to be threatened. You don't want your person to be threatened. You don't want to be harmed. So you stay out of harm's way. You don't rock the boat. You stay in where you can be comfortable and your professional status remains the same. And there is 98% of the Muslim leaders. They mm. are either made comfortable by the government. I call them scholars for dollars. Okay. Or they are, they are they're made comfortable by their students or their circumstance up in the mountains or in a village away from the mainstream is issues. But our prophet saw them when he went, when the prophet saw them went to, to, when he did not have protection in the year of sorrow, when the prophet Sam lost his wife, his main protection and support, when he lost his uncle, Abu Talib, a main source of protection and support, he was on his own. Even the mm -hmm. people who was from his tribe, they were weak, they were insignificant, and they could not give him any protection. So where did he go? He took a risk, and he went to mm -hmm. Taif. When he went to Taif, the risk didn't work. It didn't, it didn't seem to work out. But actually, his, 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 his trip to Taif was really successful. Mm -hmm. Even though they stoned him, and he was humiliated, and all of that, and he had a choice to respond back to them. When the angel Jabril came to him, he chose not to. He gave them amnesty. You remember that? Yes. He gave them amnesty because, mm. Okay. Secondly, he left from there, and what happened? He found out that he didn't have any support. So what did he do? He took another risk. He went from camp to camp during the Hajj time. You know, went to the different out of groups to be rejected, okay, to be exposed, and he was asking for their protection. Now, here's a man of his stature having to ask Kafirs, Munafik, I mean, Kafirs, you know, Musriks, okay, who don't know him for his for protection. This means he was practical. He was willing to take the risk. Then we keep going on and on. We saw how many risk takers, how he took the risk when he made the hijrah. He took the risk. When he entered Medina, he took the risk. So the Prophet Sam, even as a prophet, having mm. he didn't have all the answers, he knew that Allah would protect him. He knew that Allah would sustain him. He knew that Allah had endorsed him. But what he didn't know was the human elements around him, which takes mm. what? Human risk. Mm. So most of us, we're not risk takers. Mm. And you asked me a question earlier about my demeanor, or so to speak. Well, you know, brother, I'll be very honest with you. I'm from a very undisciplined background um, uh, of risk takers. Uh, you know, my my mother, God bless her. Uh, um, she was not. She was never a person that really principally paid all of her bills on time and things like that. And she wouldn't mind me saying that because mm -hmm. it was just not part of our Negro, you know, urban Negro thing to be responsible, pay the bills on time. At least a lot of us. Okay. So I came from a household, once I grew up, went to live with my mother and my siblings, I came from a household where we spent money. When it came, we spent it. So we were not like trained to save money, pay things on time, you know, to be, uh, what do you call it, to be um, uh, discreet and all of that there. Yeah. So uh, in life, I grew up doing what? What I learned, how to hustle, how to take the risk. And mm. one of the beautiful things about the African-American community is one of the things, even though we are, even though sometimes we are at a disadvantage when it comes to intellectual response, 
We are at a disadvantage when it comes to looking to the future and planning. One of the things that African-Americans have learned to do better than most people, we have learned to take the risk in spite of our situation. And because of that, taking that risk, it produced a Colin Powell. It produced a Condoleezza Rice. It produced, you understand know I me, mean, a Michael Jordan. It produced, you understand know I me, mean, an Obama. It produced an, uh, an Oprah Winfrey. It produced these people because inside of them, God gave them the ability to be resilient and to take the risk. Mm. Other people, they don't take the risk. And because they don't mm. take the risk, they don't get the um, reward. Get the, you, don't get the, you don't get the trajectory. Yes. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, so, look, um, Doctor, what I want to say to you and say to your audience is that um, uh, we are living in a time where we really have to be reflective. Mm. Um, um, we can't be, uh, first of all, we got to be global, like technology uh, 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 suggests. And mm. Muslims are not global. You know, uh, I, go on, I go on Facebook Live uh, every other day, and mm. I'm, reaching, I'm reaching on an average of 56,000 people in two-day period of time. I have a footprint of about 350,000 people over the years. I don't know how to use it. I don't know why it happened, but that's what it is. But you know what I'm finding most of the time? Mm. While, I'm on, while I'm giving my talk, people are just texting. Oh, how mm. do you feel, Sheikh? Oh, Sheikh, may Allah bless you, Sheikh. Oh, Sheikh, mm. yeah, Or they're asking me questions that have nothing to do with the talk that I'm giving. This mm. means that they're not accustomed to being global, to be disciplined. Um, mm. that, uh, about to, to, to plug into what's being said, they're being reactionary. They're reacting to the, um, or they're being opportunists. They know that I have a large following or viewing, and what mm. they want to do, they want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to patronize, whatever it is. And so what that does is it, 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 um, it subverts the concentration of what we're actually doing. And this is mm. what we're up against. We're mm. up against people who are Muslims, who are undisciplined, we're up mm. against people who are entrenched in their culture. We're mm. up against people who have been indoctrinated by various uh, subcultures of the Muslim world. We're up against people, you know, who are using tools, dangerous tools, uh, in a very irresponsible way. Mm. Uh, so we have to overcome these internal things. Mm. You and I and others who may be part of that 100. We have to, we have to overcome these internal things if we really want to repair our image, and if we really want to set up a platform where we can be effective against people like Joy Reid or Robert Spencer or, or the other haters who are burning the Quran or ripping the Quran and eating the Quran and mm. talking foolishness and really mm. being really despicable in their behavior towards Islam, we have to go up another notch. Mm. And so I've decided that I'm not responding to those kinds of people through mm. a podcast mm. because all I'm going to do is provoke them. But mm. if I have five or six or seven people of your caliber and we do a concerted, you see, approach to these people, mm. we can shut them down. We can significantly address what they're saying because we can get our message across without provoking them and without creating a whole lot of dust and distortion in the air because we have the intellectual, we have the uh, the educational, we have the um, the we have the um, the cultural, um, we have the global capability of understanding what we're talking about and what we're dealing about, 
that mm. will serve the interests of the Muslims and serve the interests of the non-Muslim world. I'm glad this is a very poignant uh, question. Uh, you know, there's an element in Islam which has been eviscerated. Uh, it's been it's been politically, surgically, eviscerated from the Muslim consciousness and thinking in order to make them impotent, ineffective, divided among themselves, and locked into culture. This is called jama'ah. Some of these people, when you bring up like an Islamic centric uh, view of something. That's actually looked upon as something negative. Oh, you can't look at it from an Islamic-centric point of view. You know what I mean? You have to, like, you know, that means you've identified yourself as a Muslim, whereas you need to identify yourself as, like, a regular citizen. But that, you know, you can't separate that because we're going to look at justice issues through an Islamic lens, right? I'm really enjoying, by the way, the conversation. It's very good. Alhamdulillah. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah. 